This is a WKYT podcast. Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. Later, how will Kentucky's colleges and universities handle the fall semester on their campuses? Dr. Aaron Thompson, who heads up the board that oversees them, will be joining us in just a few minutes. But first, Kentucky is now about five weeks or so away from its delayed primary election. That is coming up on June 23rd and it will be like none ever before. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed the world and the Kentucky election is something else that will have to be different. Kentucky voters will decide how delegates are pledged to the presidential candidates and will nominate candidates for the U.S. Senate and House, as well as members of the state legislature. Secretary of State Michael Adams and Governor Andy Beshear, both early in their first terms and from opposite parties, have worked together on this one to find a way to pull off a primary. Secretary of State Adams joins us remotely from Frankfurt to talk about the Kentucky primary. Mr. Secretary of State, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure. Could you, first of all, have imagined that the first election that you will be overseeing would be delayed in this way and have to be done in such an extraordinary way? Uh, no, I, certainly uh, I didn't expect this when I ran for this office last year. I don't think anyone could have predicted this. Just to give you a sense of how much things changed, uh, on March 9th, I was on KET for an hour talking about election law and policy and didn't get a single question about coronavirus. And then just seven days later, I'm standing next to the governor at a joint press conference announcing that we've delayed the election for five weeks. That's how much things change and how quickly they changed. Most of the election will be done by absentee. Uh, so is the, just tell us how this is going to go. The rule is suspended about having to give some kind of excuse uh, about uh, voting absentee for this, right? So that's right. Uh, uh, voters will have four different ways to vote. They can mail in an absentee ballot. They'll have to request it, uh, prove their identity, uh, but then can get and send back an absentee ballot by mail with postage prepaid by us. Or they can drop off their absentee ballot at their clerk's office in a secure location uh, by hand delivery. Some people don't feel comfortable mailing a ballot. They want to personally hand deliver it. Uh, we also allow early voting. We've expanded that for the two weeks before Election Day so people can come vote early if they choose. We wanted to limit the number of uh, voters uh, hitting fewer precinct voting locations with fewer uh, precinct poll workers. And then, of course, they can vote in person on Election Day. So I want to clarify, we've not taken anyone's rights away. In-person voting is in our state constitution. We've preserved that. But absentee voting is also in our state constitution. We've just made it easier. Do you foresee uh, just probably one uh, location for in-person uh, voting in each county? No, I, I think it'll be bigger than that, but it'll depend on the county. Uh, so, for example, uh, Owsley County, that's a small county, only a few precincts. Obviously, it makes sense for them to have one centralized voting location. But I don't think one location would be sufficient for Fayette County or uh, Davis County or Jefferson County. So uh, what we do in this plan is uh, here in Frankfurt, we don't decide what Election Day looks like specifically. We allow each county clerk in each county to come back to the State Board of Elections with a plan for approval for them to show us, A, how many sites they're going to have for in-person voting, and, and B, what that's going to look like, how they're going to be able to uh, eliminate direct contact between poll workers and voters. 
Now, the county clerks need to know that people intend to vote, and uh, how do voters uh, let them know that? They'll be receiving a postcard, right? That's right. In the next couple of weeks, uh, every registered voter on our voter file will get a postcard in the mail. It'll have directions to contact your county clerk. Uh, you can call your county clerk, email, fax in, uh, or even visit if, if they're uh, open and functioning uh, and get your ballot that way. Uh, or we have an online portal that will also be on this postcard, a place that's centralized where any voter can go, uh, prove identity through uh, personally identifiable information, birth date, social security number, uh, prove your identity, and then you can get mailed a ballot uh, automatically, which you can return in person uh, or you can mail back at our expense. Humans procrastinate by nature. Uh, do you, uh, what will be the, the hard deadline for getting those ballots uh, returned uh, to the county clerk? Well, this is one of the things we changed uh, under state law uh, as it stood uh, previously. We would have to get all of these absentee ballots back uh, no later than when the polls closed at 6 p.m. on Election Day. I think it's a pretty good standard. Almost every state has that standard. Under the unique situation that we have, we extended that deadline to uh, Saturday after the election, June 27th. You can't vote after June 23rd. That's Election Day. But if we get your ballot in the mail up to that Saturday following and it's postmarked June 23rd, then we'll be able to count that. All right. Now, it's my understanding then that as a result of that, we won't know the election results on election night as is tradition, right? Well, there might be certain races that are not close and we may be able to, to put out numbers and allow you all to call those races. We're not going to call races that night. Uh, we're not going to be able to have a typical uh, election night reporting. We're just not going to have enough numbers back. We're going to have a lot of absentee ballots uh, left to count. Uh, so our expectation, we've got a hard deadline of certification uh, of the totals the following week. We're giving people a week to count all the ballots. We don't think it'll take that long in every location, but it might in some places. My expectation is most of the races we're going to know the answers to pretty soon. The ones that are very close, it might take a week before we know. I'll note then Wisconsin, which is not anyone's model uh, right now of how to run the election. Uh, by law, no uh, results were announced until a week after. We're not going to do that. We're going to allow people to see the numbers as they come in and call races and declare victory or what have you. Uh, but it's going to take uh, a week potentially for some of these races to be called ultimately. Mr. Secretary, do you have concerns, given Kentucky's long history of election fraud and misdeeds, that giving people control of a ballot for a time away from the eyes of election officials uh, will open the door to potential trouble? Well, sure I do. Look, I, I take the criticisms uh, that I've gotten for this uh, on the right uh, in, in good humor. I spent two months of my life running statewide uh, calling for ballot integrity. And I haven't changed my position on that. There's no one in this state who's tougher on ballot integrity than I am. I'm the one who personally wrote and passed the photo ID law. Uh, so I take that seriously. What I'm proud to say is we've got anti-fraud protections built into this plan. Number one, you have to prove your identity to get the ballot in the first place uh, with personally identifiable information. The photo ID law isn't in effect yet. We couldn't implement it that fast, uh, but it's coming in November. But for June, you've got to still prove your identity to get this ballot. Uh, number two, you got to sign a form. And we're going to sign, have you sign that form, and then we're going to match your signature to our signatures of record the state has. We've got an MOU with the Transportation Cabinet where they've got all the signatures and all the driver's licenses. And so we're going to be able to match signatures, and that's actually required uh, by this plan. 
The third thing that we do is that we will, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to give people a chance to cure the signature if it, if it mismatches. We don't want to disenfranchise anybody, uh, obviously. Uh, but the next thing we do is we actually clean up the voter rolls with this with this program by sending out the postcard and getting back unforwardable mail back from people who who don't live here anymore and aren't voting anymore. That actually enables us to begin the process of getting these people off of our rolls, which is something I ran on. Uh, so we actually have a lot of ballot integrity built into this plan. I'm very proud of that. And one final thing is we actually put a, a barcode on every ballot envelope so we can track the ballots that are being issued the ones that are being received and the ones that are being uh, delivered back to us. That way someone can't just go stuff a ballot box. As we said, it's an extraordinary primary election and certainly the campaigns have been uh, in a, a very unusual place as well as they have uh, tried to contact voters and make their cases and so forth. Is it appropriate for them, for those campaigns, to contact voters and instruct them on how to vote in this primary election? Well, uh, certainly we haven't in any way uh, limited the ability of candidates to get their message out. That's the last thing I would ever allow for. We still have the First Amendment in this country. Uh, certainly they need to comply with social distancing. It's not encouraged for candidates to go door to door at the moment uh, for obvious reasons. But there's nothing in our plan that in any way limits free speech, in any way limits people from, from advocating for their election. Uh, the new voter ID law, as you said, will go into effect in November. Uh, do you have any concerns, uh, Mr. Secretary of State, about uh, people being able to get uh, the appropriate ID that they will need before then, uh, given the, the situation with the closed offices in, in many of our counties? Well, I don't yet. Uh, I may in the future. Uh, right now, it's, it's uh, mid-May. This law goes into effect for the November election. I don't think anyone seriously believes that you're going to have government offices be closed for six months. Uh, I think if the governor believed that were the case, he'd be up front with us and tell us. I don't think he or I or anyone anticipates we're going to have uh, government offices that issue IDs to be closed that long and for people to be unable to get the photo ID. But if that actually does happen, there is a provision in the law uh, that I asked to be inserted and was inserted that allows people to get a pass on providing a photo ID if they have a reasonable impediment to getting a photo ID. Obviously not being able to go get your ID is a reasonable impediment, we would accept that. Uh, so, uh, so I don't want anyone to be concerned that they're not gonna be able to vote in November uh, because of this law. If the government offices are open, they can get an ID, and if they're not, they'll be able to vote with a non-photo ID. Obviously, the governor vetoed uh, that uh, voter ID law, and the state legislature overrode him, and uh, you uh, now have that law that, that you championed. But then you and the governor got together and worked this out for this uh, primary election in this uh, extraordinary way. Uh, what does that say about uh, cooperation between, as we said, uh, a Republican and a Democrat, both of you uh, very early, uh, in your uh, first terms of office? Well, what I said at uh, the press conference where the governor and I announced this plan is the biggest threat to our elections right now is not foreign, it's domestic. It's not Russia or China, it's, it's us. It's uh, people in, in leadership who uh, fall victim to brinksmanship and partisanship. The, the biggest problem in Wisconsin wasn't that they had in-person voting or that they had voting by mail or what have you. The problem was the voters didn't know the rules of the game until the morning of the election. The same thing happened in Ohio. They had an election that was off and on and off. You had lawsuits, you had uh, partisanship, and so we avoided that. To me, it was important to reach an agreement with the governor some month and a half in advance so we could have the rules of the game 
be clear, be known in advance, and most important, signed off on by Republicans and Democrats. If the governor had done this on his own, I don't think Republicans would have taken it well that the Democratic governor was redoing the rules for their own primary. Uh, and vice versa, Democrats wouldn't have trusted me to do this on my own either. So it was important to show bipartisanship in action and come up with a good solution. Obviously, this is a national emergency, a very, very unusual time in our nation and here in Kentucky. But what if people like this? Uh, what if there is a high turnout because people find it convenient that they were able to uh, vote at home and, and turn these ballots in? And there is a clamor for some changes like this to be permanent. Right now, a voter either has to have an excuse to vote absentee or show up within a 12-hour window on a weekday. Uh, what if people like this? Could you favor uh, this going forward? Well, I, uh, we'll see what happens in this primary. Uh, we'll see what happens in November if, if we have to make changes for November. Uh, but the next time the legislature comes into session uh, is uh, January of 2021, and they'll have a budget to write. They'll have other priorities. Uh, will, the, will the public opinion in favor of uh, expanded absentee be so strong that that's a primary consideration for them in making policy, I, I don't know. And plus, there won't even be an election uh, next year. So I, I, I tend to doubt that you'll have so much uh, like of any change that we make that people will clamor for it uh, enough at this moment to press for it to be implemented uh, two years from now. But I will say, I actually had a, a easy to vote bill I wrote. I wrote a hard to cheat bill for photo ID and an easy to vote bill that expanded absentee voting uh, made things easier in terms of uh, turnout. Uh, a very technical bill, but a, good, a very good bill. It was on track for passage until the session was aborted uh, for, for COVID-19. So I hope to come back with similar ideas in the future. Some of those ideas are actually implemented in this agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, consolidating polling locations, allowing vote centers, allowing independent voters, poll workers. Uh, we've got a lot of solutions that were in that bill that we now have a pilot project for. I'm hoping to see them come back. The budget is busted uh, for the state, uh, and the Bashir administration is asking agencies to take a 12.5% cut uh, going forward. Uh, obviously, he cannot control what constitutional offices do, uh, such as your own, but as I understand it, you've decided to comply with that. I have. I wanted to be a team player with legislative leadership and the governor's office and a team player uh, with all the offices and also a fiscal conservative. We're one of the smallest government offices. I don't think any constitutional office is smaller than we are or has a smaller budget than we do. We actually lost the entirety of our budget for 2021. They took all of our general fund appropriation out of the budget. We're just living off our savings, essentially, and the fees that we generate through our services. Uh, but, but that's okay. Look, yeah. we've got a crisis. We're worried about having enough revenue for schools and so forth, so we were happy to, to take one for the team. Secretary of State Michael Adams, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Thanks so much. Anytime. Thanks, and Bill. Stay with us now on Kentucky Newsmakers. We'll be back with Dr. Aaron Thompson, who oversees Kentucky's public universities and colleges in just a moment. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. Kentucky colleges and universities were hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic and they had to move quickly. Now they're planning the way forward and most want students back on campus in the fall. The economic turmoil that hit so hard likely ripped away the hope that higher ed would finally see a reversal in state cuts that started back in the Great Recession in 2008. Now college leaders are trying to figure out spacing and other issues while moving ahead. And by the way, this all came as 
says the Council on Post-Secondary Education released a study showing that engineering jobs will increase and will outpace the national average. That will drive the need for more college degrees. Joining us today, Dr. Aaron Thompson, who is president of the board that oversees higher education here in Kentucky. He has his own inspiring story of how college lifted him up from Appalachian poverty to become a college professor and researcher and nationally recognized speaker on education and diversity. Dr. Thompson, thank you very much uh, for being with us as always. Thank you, Bill. How uh, good to see you, even though virtually. There you go, and we appreciate you. How successful were Kentucky's colleges and universities in just turning on a dime and moving exclusively to uh, online instruction? You know, Bill, I've, you know, I've been through a lot of things in my life, and I've seen a lot of ups and downs. I've never seen a set of institutions move as fast and as well as they did back in the first week of March when we knew things were coming and we knew that we had to make sure we keep our students safe and make sure that we had to keep them on track to get that certificate or degree that we promised them that we would do. And they turned fast. They pushed into action a lot of what uh, we would hope that they would have done and making sure their faculty got skilled up to keep providing those classes online do you so very well. Do you foresee a more hybrid approach as the new school year is uh, coming into view where there may be both online and in-person components to courses? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we are going to do uh, online classes all summer long, so we have never closed. I tell people this. We've uh, done what we need to do to stay open, even though we've done it a little bit different than we had before. Uh, all online uh, throughout this semester and this summer will be all online. But this fall, we plan on starting face-to-face. -face. But I tell people face-to-face -face will not look as if it did before. So I can imagine we'll still do more online. We will do face-to-face, uh, -face, hopefully, unless something dramatically changes us from moving in that direction. But we'll have a lot more hybrid approach. Uh, we will, in many cases, maybe teaching 10 or 15 people in the classroom properly spaced, uh, and then uh, zooming out to uh, populations, uh, in some cases on our campus, mm -hmm. and in some cases off our campus. So much more of a hybrid approach. Maybe even a rotation basis for students in, in classroom, that sort of thing? Oh, absolutely, and, and yes. So the classic way we've been doing schedules will no longer be uh, that for sure. And, and, and what we know is that, and I appreciate you bringing up how quickly we moved, and we're probably gonna have to move quickly this fall too. So we're gonna see what works. The idea is we're gonna keep our students safe. We're gonna make sure that we do what we can uh, to do the things that fall under the CDC, Healthy Kentucky, you know, White House guidelines to do that, but we are also very focused mm -hmm. on making sure they are heavily deep in an academic endeavor that's rigorous and also in the social support and student support that they need, even though more of that will probably be online. Dr. Thompson, there are two things we hear, and that is that students are eager to return to campuses and that their parents are worried about uh, them potentially uh, returning to campus. Uh, would you agree that uh, those mixed emotions are out there? Absolutely mixed emotions. I got two children in college and I know they're ready uh, to get back in the mix. At the same time, parents and all of us, we care about 
exposing our kids to anything that we, they shouldn't be exposed to, no matter what, in this case, COVID-19. So we are worried. That's why we in higher education, and I know the governor's office and all those that are involved with making sure that we do it right, are trying to exactly do it right. And so I meet with the presidents every week uh, together. I'll meet with them this afternoon. and. And uh, we talk all the time to make sure that we have in place a solid plan to let parents know that we're gonna do everything that's humanly possible to make sure that their students stay safe while they learn. This all came along at a time when finally higher education was going to see an end to the cuts that have been so pervasive and have gone on for a dozen years in Kentucky. Well, most states had restored their funding to uh, public uh, colleges and universities after the recession that struck in 2008. Kentucky kept cutting, uh, but it looked like we were about at the end of that. Are you concerned now that the coronavirus situation uh, means that uh, that will continue as far as those cuts and, and, and lack of public funding? Uh, yes, uh, I'm very concerned. All of us are. And Bill, I will point out that, you know, we had these 10, 11 straight cuts and, and we were one of two states that hadn't reinvested in higher ed uh, at the levels that needed to be reinvested. And, and we were coming out of that. We had, a, a you know, the legislature and the governor's office had a plan to make sure that we did. And this has created a whole nother scenario for us with the lack of revenue that will be coming to our state coffers, which means there's a good chance we'll be cut again. And this is very problematic for a system that already been, uh, you know, decimated, you know, with lack of funding. But I will point out too, that we also kept increasing those outputs that we needed to do to make sure that Kentucky uh, had a viable, very educated workforce that they need to move the economy along. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm worried that we can continue this in, in this uh, atmosphere, but once again, our campuses and our presidents and those that are uh, there for rubber meets the road, faculty and staff, we're going to make sure we do all that we can do on our part to make sure that we are the engine for the recovery. There's a brand new CPE study out this week that says Kentucky will need more engineering graduates over the next decade. And it says Kentucky graduates who then in all likelihood earn pretty good money are likely to stay close to home. Uh, you, that, given that, uh, that would sound like uh, we need to, uh, to keep going with our universities, uh, certainly. Well, for sure, and I, let me just give you some examples. I mean, unemployment's gone up like crazy, and you saw this in the recession. The people that didn't lose their jobs or the people that were quickly reemployed were those that were college educated with a certificate or some baccalaureate degree or higher. And we're seeing the same thing now. I mean, the indications are those that are getting laid off or those that are not skilled to do the labor that uh, can't be replaced by some mechanism. So the argument here is that we're gonna have to have a very strong technologically based workforce to get us in an economy that will uh, not only create the recovery, but create a consistency, an engine that builds Kentucky to what Kentucky needs to be built to a powerhouse. Engin this engineering study showed that that uh, there were some opportunities there. So we're gonna have to feed not only those 
processes to get us more engineers, but we're gonna have to feed those processes to get us more people with a college uh, certificate or degree. So if we don't think about this, what we've done is we're, 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 cutting, we're taking away the gas to this engine that's gonna actually help us to recover. Dr. Aaron Thompson, the president of the Council on Post-Secondary Education, thanks for being with us, we appreciate it. And we hope you'll stay with us now. We'll be back on Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. The country is slowly beating back the coronavirus. Most states are starting to reopen, but another threat is looming. Our national political analyst takes a closer look. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. The U.S. is months into the coronavirus pandemic, and now another mysterious illness, this one impacting children. It's called pediatric multi-system inflammatory syndrome. New York State's health department says it looks like most children with the disease have also tested positive for coronavirus or have COVID-19 antibodies. I asked infectious disease pediatric specialist, Dr. Sean O'Leary, about the ties between the two illnesses. So it looks like uh, these cases are appearing about a month after a community or a state gets hit hard with COVID-19. So that suggests some kind of an immune trigger, some kind of a, the body's responding to an infection with COVID-19. It is a rare syndrome, so it's, it's affecting uh, roughly around 100 kids right now. We're still trying to sort that out. Um, but it, it causes um, fever in, in pretty much all cases. The kids tend to be pretty sick. Uh, it's, it's kids anywhere from uh, about age five up through teenage years, some younger kids as well. A few children have died from this syndrome, uh, but most children have, have survived. It is a very serious illness. So the children do get, uh, they can get information in their intestines, information in their heart, information elsewhere. Dr. O'Leary emphasizes that while we are hearing a lot about this syndrome, it is rare. Want more Full Court Press? Check out our new weekday show, Full Court Press Now. And as always, tune in Sunday. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you. And you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren this morning at 1130 on WKYT. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Kentucky Newsmakers. I'll see you this week on WKYT News. And you make it a good week ahead.